So here's a problem. I began to self-identify as an autist without a professional's diagnosis. And this was the era of all this self-diagnosing through the internet in which people end up sort of trying to cure themselves without a professional's help. So, well, while I don't, I don't think that's, you know, a problem, it could be that um, it, it might not be a, able to permanently cure the problem in a healthy manner. So during that time, I was still living with my parents. And if you know anything about Latino parents, is that they don't believe in mental illness, right? You ju- they, they, they just want you to solve the problem as if you're going to be like, um, as, as if you are under these circumstances and you have to rise above it, right? That's what they like the most. They sort of value this kind of, um, this kind of, you know, poor upbringing and you made yourself, you know, up to be the person who they want you to be. Um, but, you know, the problem was that I had no clue how to sort of circumvent this thing that I had. And so I had no idea how to get a hold of a psychologist. So let me explain. I was reading a lot of forums about people who were diagnosing themselves with autism and Asperger's syndrome. But here's what's interesting. I just accepted that getting a diagnosis was a convenient thing already in place for people that could just go there as if they were going to go to a doctor's visit, which it is. But you see, I had no idea how to search for one. And this was the time before like BetterHelp and these, um, these apps that we have now. And even if I did find one, I had no idea how to voice my concerns about the self-diagnosis. That I, that, that I wanted to do. It's as if people have access to a psychologist, right? You know, the right psychologist and one who wouldn't pass you off to a psychiatrist to give you drugs, which to no surprise, many people that I personally know that goes to a therapist on a regular basis, you know, uh, ends up with a medication to which I would ask, what's the point of constantly going to a therapist you know, if you're just going to be, you know, passed off to a psychiatrist to, um, you know, you're, you are not going to heal yourself um, through that. You know, remember, I was still living with my parents back then that I had no idea how to do this. Eventually, I got, I got one and my greatest fear became true in that the therapist did nothing. Worse yet, I felt like it was me after all who had to do the real work and get myself out, out of the situation by, you know, stepping out of the comfort zone, all these advice that you typically get, which lead me, led me to try new things, which would always, you know, go the same way. My parents would tell me, why don't I get a job? And then when I did have a job, why am I not going to school? And then when I was doing both, just stay at home and do nothing while I waste my youth away? Is that kind of the way that this whole thing is supposed to work? I felt that I had to prove something to myself. I didn't want a therapist to do the work for me. I wouldn't feel, it wouldn't feel rewarding. 
it would only feel rewarding if I did it and it was authentically me. And don't get me wrong, I understand that therapists are there to kind of like assess you and guide you and that the real work has to be done by you. Um, you know, but, but here's the thing, here's the thing about momentum. Like when I could use that momentum to pull myself out of situations without anyone's help, like without like my parents, the government, schools, bosses, you know, that's, that is kind of the idea, but I don't really have the momentum. I'm going to talk about momentum um, because I think it's important, um, especially with the kind of situation um, that I've been voicing through here. So, um, you know, my problem has always been I can't make any friends. And, you know, I've been trained to never be the victim. Even even if there are situations where you are caught in a difficult situation, never become the victim, no matter what. That was my mentality. I had no compassion for myself. Until this day, I do honor that request. Never be the victim. I felt that there are still situations that are very specific and particular to me. You know, I have to perform everywhere I go. And when I do, I have to perform in between the performances. You know, when I switch, um, you know, cognitive duties. Who am I to think that events slide through as if the momentum of the first event would carry me seamlessly to the second event? And I don't mean that, you know, the momentum carries me, but the momentum motivates me in such a way that the next event would seem possible by, you know, um, you know, because like my, still my job is to exercise will, you know, my, my willpower for me to pass on through these events until I reach my life goals. That's kind of how, you know, the, uh, therapists and a lot of people frame it and when I don't make the cut you know when I don't take care take advantage of this momentum it was because um you know I kind of wasted it on being distracted by you know small menial things like YouTube videos and movies so here life was giving me an opportunity but I wasted it by being careless that's kind of how um that's how the narrative goes. But who even cares about momentum, right? I should steer my life in the direction I want by making it happen despite momentum. That's the kind of pride that I had within me. That's the kind of drive I had within me. What am I to, what am I some sort of complainer, like a victim? What do I need momentum for? If I don't accomplish what I set out by my own will, then should I stay working as a, you know, as a in a shitty job that you know I don't even do anything just obey my bosses so the theory about autism at least in the neurological um, brain chemistry ways goes along the lines of of what I'm about to say so when you are maturing the brain is growing Neurons are connecting with other neurons so that they can communicate with with neurochemicals. You know, they pass neurochemicals to the synapses. As you grow, these pathways are shooting these neurochemicals so that they end up in the right places, in the right parts of your brain. And the way you learn is through habit. 
why. So the more things you do over and over again, your behavior begins to change and and your actions begin to facilitate based on, you know, the habits because the neurochemicals are shooting shooting neurons through your brain. The scientific picture of habitual learning is that neurochemicals travels through these same pathways. The easier the flow of neurochemicals, the better the habits become reinforced, of course, because, you know, the flows of neurochemicals are going through these synapses. So these neuropathways reinforce those pathways by becoming better conductors. What does it mean to be better conductors? So these neuropathways must reinforce. What do I mean by that? So reinforcing um, happens through myelination. It's M-Y-E-L-I-T-I-O-N, if I spell it correctly. But it's this myelinating of neurons itself that reinforces. So what, what is this myelination? Well, it's called a myelin sheath. It's a fatty tissue that wraps around the, the branching of the neurons to insulate the neurons like an electrical wire inside like a rubber protection so it'll conduct better. And so these traveling neurochemicals, they flow efficiently um, through these web of neurons that are myelinated. The more neurons fire with those branches, the more myelin sheaths are allocated um, there because they are there to protect the, and insulate the pathways that are being used. So the basic understanding of child development is that there's a window of opportunity where the child must engage in crucial learning. This period is where the child's neuroplasticity is most efficient. After that, he's left uh, with his own learning. But first, the infant must learn basic fundamentals like empathy, socializing, and bonding. Once that window of opportunity is gone, it's gone. You will never have this opportunity to reinforce those neurons with myelin sheaths that are fresh, youthful, and plastic. The child after that period would need to rely on learned behavior if he or she lost critical time. And learned behavior is strenuous. It's costly. Learned behavior is used to learn technical skills like math problems or reading but children who had little reinforced behavior would not exhibit these fundamental uh, fundamental things like socializing and bonding with intuitive behaviors because that's how it, it, it should be the child would seem a little off you know if they didn't have this early kind of intuitive training the way they talk it would be a little bit too forward a little bit too obvious and too detached because he would have to sort of exert a kind of will that isn't intuitive, which is why those on the spectrum are described as straightforward, a little bit boring, a little bit too on the nose. They have to put off intuitive learning with learned behavior because a child can no longer intuitively learn at such a late stage. But the more the child needs to catch up, the harder it gets. And, and you know, this is kind of how you you understand how when the child progresses in this kind of manner, you know, he gets left behind. And this is what happens. Life catches up to him that lost crucial time in that window of opportunity. So when they're matched with their peers, when they're compared with their peers that have that have already had these fundamental behaviors intuitively socialized, 
or well myelinated in their neurons. The child who hasn't falls behind. The child must learn other things like how to color inside the lines, like what's two plus two and how to tell time. But socializing and bonding feels like work to him, unlike his peers. If the unmyelinated child wanted to catch up, he must work double, which is almost impossible at that point. So, yeah, um, and this is kind of the thing that I talk about momentum um, and how many people, it seems like momentum kind of pulls pulls them to it without seeming too strenuous. And I've noticed this when it comes to sort of kind of like dating, especially with men. They sort of see this stage of gradual, you know, progressive to towards like being in a relationship. When one typically thinks of like, for example, asking a girl out, he would like, okay, so I'm going to pump myself up, right? I'm, I'm just going to go and say the first thing that comes to mind. And then he goes, and then all he has to do is say that first line, say that first thing, right? And then the momentum just carries him to, you know, wherever he wanted to go, right? I mean, that open opening and then um, the follow-up, you know, following up to the opening and then, you know, escalating and then um, asking her out for a date and then showing up for the date and then kissing her and then um taking her back home and all that stuff sure there is some like you know there there is some some things that you have to push yourself um through but there's nothing there that would seem like a complete halt a complete block because there's a kind of momentum that's going there well to an artist every single little step is like you have to consciously and purposefully with uh, great calculation turn your focus to the next thing, right? There, there isn't a seamless kind of um, blend through these events. You have to um, like really turn to the next thing. And, um, you know, that's what... <laughs> um, that's that you know that's been my greatest um you know my my greatest thing and you know this kind of um thinking is really dangerous because it can um lead to some really screwed up beliefs beliefs that feel like curses right and beliefs that one may think that if there's a god that a, he might be messing with you like really really bad um so i learned that clumsiness clumsiness is a trait for people on the autistic spectrum this is what kind of led me to believe that i had autism those on the lighter side of the spectrum would be referred to as asperger syndrome and i was convinced that this was my diagnosis you know i bought books i learned everything there was to know about it in the internet. I watched movies. I researched famous celebrities who had Asperger syndrome. I marked all the box, all, you know, all the boxes, all the check, um, the lists, and I was theorizing on the possibilities as to why I had the condition. 
So I was born through C-section and apparently, you know, um, vaginal juices that the, the infants are lathered on their way out of the vaginal cavity does serve a purpose. It's supposed to stimulate proper development of the skin, which then sort of leads to his body, you know, and then eventually it leads to the growth of the brain in a much more natural way. So my mother had me later in life. And that was also a reason as to why I thought I was born in the, on the spectrum. I also exhibited interests in things like maths and science rather than going out with my friends and like bonding and socializing. But that could be misdiagnosed as introversion. I mean, that, that could be like, oh, you know, he's just shy. And um, I had a hard, hard time with sports despite forcing myself to get into a team just so that I would have this kind of momentum going. You know, I thought that if I would force myself and do the things that, you know, my adults would tell me to do, I thought that I would just grow out of this kind of hell or this prison. And, you know, I I just couldn't keep up with the ball in the way that um, I could control it like the, like my other peers, but it, but that could be diagnosed as simply incompetence. Oh, you, you just can't play. You know, you suck at playing, right? But I learned that poor eye-hand coordination uh, was an indicator of being on the spectrum, which could explain my clumsiness, which could explain the reason why I couldn't play soccer and why I wasn't as skilled as many other. I would knock over pans. I would knock over jars when I was little. I was known to like, you know, bump my head on the wall. And I was kind of known as like the failure of the family, to put it bluntly. I was reminded of it like subtly, not overtly, because of course nobody's going to say that. But there was this sort of feeling there. And I was kind of known to like um, (laughs) hurt myself, like... One time I was trying to pick up something on the floor and I smashed my finger on on the um on on the floor while I was trying to pick up a piece of paper, right? You know, I would clip my shoulders on doorknobs and hinges and I I just thought, you know, this kind of happens. And you know, this could be diagnosed as you know being underslept. And so I was always in in on a kind of, you know, on a kind of doubt, you could always point yourself, oh, it's not autism, it's not Asperger's syndrome, it's just this, it's just that, you just have to do better, right? And I, and I always default to, you know, it's just you, you just have to do better, right? Not, I have Asperger's syndrome. That's crazy, you know, kind of like my Latino parents, you know, you're just, you know, you're just making shit up, you gotta do better. Um, I, um, instead, um, most of my, most of like the family duties were handled by my brother. Um, and it, that just instilled into me that I was kind of like the failure of the family. And by the time I I went to high school, um, I, I, I already had this kind of belief in me that I just could not unbelieve, right? Also, I can't stand in loud areas. Um, I just muscle my way through, you know, loud venues or, or nightclubs or bars and, and places where there's loud music because 
I thought that I just needed to get sensitized to it. I just needed to get used to it. And I just forced my mind to ignore um, the discomfort, you know, the best I can, even though it was brutal stress and it put me under a lot of weight. Um, I cannot sleep in moving cars. Like I need my very still and quiet bedroom and comfy bed. Um, even Even if I'm on road trips, um, very rarely would I sleep. Um, it is very difficult for me to sleep anywhere that is in my bed, to tell you the truth. I get very distracted as if I had ADHD, but this problem, this probably um, where I mastered the art of focusing. You know, I, I noticed that I can focus intently on a particular thing as long as I calm my mind. And I think this is what I can do better than most people. Um, because they didn't, they they have, they don't really have a um, a reason to focus, right? Um, as for me, I forced myself, right? I kind of learned this behavior to calm myself, calm my nerves, and be still. Also, I had an interest on uh, quite a few things, but I typically, you know, picked a few things. Um, and those on the spectrum are known to be savants when it comes to their interests, and they spend a majority of their time focusing on that. And for me, I very early, like really early, even before high school, I learned about quantum mechanics and, and physics. Um, and I didn't even have a physics class, but I just stumbled upon it, and I thought it was interesting. It was a thing that I couldn't stop thinking about. You know, I tried to learn everything there was to know about quantic, the quantic, quantum mechanical model of the universe. I learned about Einstein's special theory and general theory of relativity. I learned about Lorentz transformations and how light waves all travel at a constant speed. I understood that space-time in this sort of fabric model and that Lorentz transformations meant that there was theoretically a possible way to stop time uh, for the one traveling uh, at the speed of light. I learned about post-Einsteinian physics and the more generally accepted quantum mechanical model established by Niels Bohr and um, you know, Schrodinger and, and, um, and all those folks. I learned about you know, Feynman diagrams. I looked up the standard subatomic particles known to man. Um, and, you know, we were, during that time, I believe it was like, you know, in the 2010s, we were in the cusp of finding the Higgs boson. And I wanted to learn more about string theory and the newer M theory that was really fascinating back in those days. Um, you know, I learned about brains and membranes and the many worlds interpretations. You know, that would give me a start to more, you know, cranial philosophies. And, you know, I was like, I couldn't be no more than 15 when I t- stumbled upon these things. Um, I felt more at home knowing that the world wasn't this dry. It wasn't this con- you know, concrete, gray, blinding sunlight of a bore that it was compared to like the subatomic world of these crazy spinning and uh, light particles and vectors and, and, and you know, black holes. Um, but yeah, so... You know, when it came to these things, I, I can really understand it. But when it came to, like, um, talking and socializing, that became a little bit more di- more difficult. 
and you're speaking of that, um, I exhibit what psychologists would call mind blindness, the inability to form mirror neurons with uh, um, others is a, a kind of big, you know, big tail for somebody that have autism spec autism syndrome or autism. Of course, you already knew that, right? Probably the um, you guys who are listening to it might say, yeah, you, you definitely are on the spectrum. Um, you have trouble forming connections and bonds with others. Um, and that it's pretty much a big thing. But despite all of the discoveries I've made, you know, I still don't think I have Asperger's syndrome or, or any type of autism. You know, after all, I did manage to get an official diagnosis from a psychologist and a psychiatrist, mind you. And it turned out I do not have any of these things because they told me. Only social anxiety and general anxiety disorder. That's that's what they said, you know. And you know the worksheets that the therapists hand you out that nobody ever does? You know, nobody, you know, nobody fills these out. Um, well, I filled them out. And that's how beyond helpless I was. I filled out these worksheets that nobody ever does. But despite of this, um, I do worry about this sort of self-diagnosis phenomena that has been going around for a long time. I do think that it, it might hinder people on discovering new ways of being. And I worry that the psychologists might have gone too far. Today, it's the, um, what's it called, the, the Myers-Briggs test, the MBTI, I believe. And I worry that this might take on the next role of this sort of self-diagnosis on the internet. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you why I think premature diagnosis might be a little bit more harm than good. Um, yeah, of course, I don't have the right information with all the right information with me, but a lot of what I've said has been proven misleading. Like, in fact, scientists have recently discovered that like adult brains um, can form new neurons, you know, despite what, what we're told. You know, adult brains are more plastic than previously thought. And this kind of thinking is precisely why I worry about people who kind of, um, you know, see themselves as autists and, you know, that's, they, they find a community, they find a group, and they all kind of stick together, right? And when somebody tries to, to say I'm out, they're like, yeah, but remember, you're still an autist. And I think that people self, um, they self-identify themselves as that and they build a kind of lifestyle. But remember, it's not about the diagnosis of itself. It's about how you got it. Because remember what I said at the beginning. Remember I said um, how it was very difficult for me to get myself to a therapist in the first place. And that process itself, it's recorded and anticipated by this sort of inscripted socius. So now we're, st we're starting to talk about the theory of and the sort of history of psychoanalysis um, in order to account for the struggle. Um, so I think I'm going to move on 
to, um, let's see, I might move on to describe a little bit more on this kind of inseldom that I would describe. And I have some really interesting um, topics when it comes to inseldom, any sort of postmodern anti-representational way, right? And I really want to get my head in the right place so that I can start writing about inseldom because here's the thing. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to combine two things and I'm trying to combine them um, in a way that would form a sort of totalizing theory. And the first thing is my understanding when it comes to the social salesman and space, right? The, the real currency of a, well, the currency of a traditional salesman is money and his persuasion. The currency for a social salesman is space and his ability to add sort of absence into space. And then my second theory is a theory uh, of hubris. So what is hubris? Hubris is overconfidence, right? It's not more confidence, right? People think that confidence plus more confidence equals a, a new kind of confidence. No, it's just the same thing. What I, when I'm talking about hubris, I'm talking about a, comp, a confidence that occurs at a particular space that um, isn't really designed for it. So overconfidence is very much underrated, right? Um, and hubris is sort of attached with sexuality and your ability 